Where does it begin when we are talking about uh, talented and skilled authors and illustrators uh, who are so good at what they did? What about when they were children and just getting the notion of maybe writing their own stories or creating their own illustrations? There is a wonderful book that has just been published called Our Story Begins. Your favorite authors and illustrators share fun, inspiring, and occasionally ridiculous things they wrote and drew as kids. And in this wonderful little book, uh, you get to see with your own eyes uh, examples from the childhoods of, of an array of well-known uh, authors and writers and illustrators. And it is so fascinating to see in in most cases uh, the initial spark of very impressive talent, which of course has come to uh, wonderful fruition uh, years later. And um, my guest is the editor of this book, Alyssa Brent Weissman, and she happens to be uh, one of the talented people whose early, early work is uh, is represented in this this book. She uh, is the award-winning author of five different novels intended for young readers, including the short seller Nerd Camp and Nerd Camp 2.0. And uh, she is the editor of this book, which uh, is published by uh, Athenium Books for Young Readers. Again, it's called Our Story Begins. Your favorite authors and illustrators share fun, inspiring, and occasionally ridiculous things they wrote and drew as kids. And uh, Alyssa Brent Weissman, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed this book, and it's just an absolutely fantastic idea. I assume that it was your idea, or, or was it someone else's? No, it was my idea, although when I thought of it, I couldn't believe that it hadn't already been someone else's idea. Um, I thought for sure when I had the idea for a collection of stories and drawings that um, authors, especially children's authors and illustrators, created when they were their reader's age, I thought for sure that somebody else had already done it. And I went online and looked and looked, and I couldn't find anything like it and decided that then I would be the one to put it together. I want you to share with our listeners uh, essentially the what, what you talk about in the preface of the book. And uh, it starts with this sentence, our story begins with a box and a basement. That's right. <laughs> or a box in a basement. And, That's uh, right. and uh, tell us uh, what was in that box and how it sure. was marked. Well, I'll start with the basement, which was in the house where I grew up, where my parents still live. And um, I was home visiting them and my mom wanted me to go through some of the boxes with my name on them in the basement. And I did so, and I found one box that was just filled completely to the top, and it was a big box with all stories that I wrote as a kid. So there were notebooks of every type, marble notebooks, spiral notebooks. There were handwritten stories on paper. There were some that I'd typed on my dad's old typewriter. Um, And I started going through this box, and it was so much fun, and some of the stories really made me laugh because they were very, very clever for someone young, and some of them made me laugh because they were just so terrible. And um, I started thinking about how now, as an author, I do a lot of 
visits to schools, and I talk about the fact that when I was in fifth grade, I wrote a novel and tried unsuccessfully to get it published. And many times after I tell that story, a lot of the kids will ask me if they can read that book or if I'm ever going to do anything with that book. And I started to think that, um, you know, I couldn't be the only one with a box like this in a basement somewhere. And I wondered what some of my favorite authors wrote when they were kids or if they wrote at all. And then I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to see drawings that illustrators created when they were kids? And um, so as I said, I realized nobody else had done this before. So I started to ask. I talked to some of the other, some other authors and illustrators that I knew. Um, and I started to hear such wonderful, wonderful stories about themselves as young, you know, just starting to experiment and explore um, that I thought, you know, I'd, I'd love to put together these stories about, about these authors and illustrators as kids along with the actual work that they have saved. And what resulted is this book, Our, stories be- Our Story Begins. So did you end up contacting authors and illustrators that you already knew? I mean, by and large, is that what we're talking about here in terms of the No, people? that's how it began, to make sure that um, there were people who thought this was a good idea and had something saved. Um, what really got the ball rolling was I was at a Simon & Schuster dinner, and I was sitting next to Candace Fleming, who is a very well-known, successful author, for young readers, um, and she was on one side of me, and Tim Fetterly, who is another well-known, hilarious author for young readers, on the other side. And um, I was especially talking to to Candace about this, and she told me a great story of how when she was in about fifth grade, she wrote a story, and she thought that it deserved a medal. So she scraped the Newberry sticker off of her class copy of The Witch of Blackbird Pond and stuck it on her handwritten story. And I thought, this is the kind of thing that needs to go in a book like this alongside the actual story that she wrote at that time. And um, when I decided to put it together, Candace was very interested in being involved, and her partner and illustrator, Erica Roman, who's a Caldecott-winning illustrator, she said he also had stuff saved from when he was little, and they were willing to ask more of their friends, and they knew a lot more people in the community than I did at the time. And so the list, I started to build the list from there. Tim Fetterly, who was sitting on the other side of me, ends up being in the book as well. Um, and from there, my editor at, um, at Simon & Schuster and I tried to think about who we might want to approach to be in the book. And um, most of the people in the book I have never met personally. Even now, after working with them for a couple of years on this, most of the communication has been over email. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. One thing that is uh, I, I found intriguing was um, reading about uh, a couple of different reasons why certain people declined to participate, uh, declined to have some of their earlier work uh, included in this collection, and and for you know a, a real variation of reasons. I think this is just kind of interesting to think about, and it also I think helps us appreciate uh, then the the decision by uh, all of the writers and illustrators who are part of this book to in fact make this kind of material available uh, to you and 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 to all of us. Talk for a moment about what what. Uh, compelled certain certain people to to not be part of this sure well some people that i contacted just simply didn't have anything for a couple of reasons some of them who are now extremely successful well-known authors didn't write at all as kids 
Um, I had one person tell me I went to Catholic school. I didn't write anything creative until I was an adult. Um, I had someone else um, tell me she didn't really, she did schoolwork, but then otherwise didn't pick up a pen until she was about 40 years old. And so they simply didn't have anything. Other people um, wrote lots and lots or drew lots and lots, but didn't save anything. Um, or quite frequently, they told me my mom didn't save anything. And um, so for that reason, those people couldn't be in the book either. I had one author who, who was so disappointed she couldn't participate. She said she wrote for her high school or junior high newspaper. She reported on boys' sports, and she went so far as to call her old school and see if they had any records of it, but, but they don't, and this was before the time when it would have been online. Um, some other people did write and they did save, but what they had they considered too personal to share, um, which I completely understand. And um, some other people maybe had something, but they were just too busy with, you know, their, their careers and their families and everything else that they have going on that they didn't really have time to go looking for it or to participate in something like this. So there were lots of reasons why people didn't want to be involved. But what was really nice was that pretty much everyone I reached out to, I heard back from, and everyone was very um, warm and excited about the idea and just, you know, happy to talk to me. And so it was a real honor and pleasure for me to be talking to some of these people that I admire so much and get to speak to them a little bit about um, themselves when they were kids. Hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Alyssa Brent Weissman about a book that she has... uh helped to create an edit called Our Story Begins. Your favorite authors and illustrators share fun, inspiring, and occasionally ridiculous things they wrote and drew as kids. And uh, that pretty much sums up what this book is is all about. And it is endlessly fascinating and, and inspiring, really, as well. Uh, I think a good place uh, for us to go at this point is to Chapter 10, which is your own contribution uh, to this to this book? I mean, s- specifically, and we should maybe mention that the f- the format of the book uh, is that we see a photograph of uh, each author or or, or illustrator. Uh, I would s- assume from roughly the time that the material uh, originates. So, in your case, it's a nice perky. Uh, school photo it appears to be and maybe from about the third grade or I'm not sure but anyway uh, and then the author or illustrator uh, talks a little bit about uh, the example that you are about to see so tell our listeners about uh, what you ended up submitting for this book sure so um I talk a little bit about how um, I wanted to be an author, a children's author specifically. From the time I was very little, and I put that desire into words in about the third grade when all of my friends somehow decided they were going to be children's authors, and I said I would be too. And within a couple weeks, they'd moved on to wanting to be other things, and I stuck with wanting to be a children's author, and and here I am today. I was always kind of lying across my floor, scribbling in notebooks, writing story after story. And um, by the time I was in fifth and sixth grade, I decided that it was time to get my career started because I wanted to be like the author Gordon Corman, who actually is in the book as well, who um, amazingly published his first book when he was in seventh grade, when he was 13 years old. And I knew that as a kid, and he was one of my favorite authors, and that was just 
so, so cool and endlessly inspiring to me. Um, I got to meet him. I interviewed him for a project, and I, you know, I took a picture with him that also appears in the book. In this book, our story begins. And so I wrote um, a novel called The Ryland Revolt about a pair of twins, a boy and a girl, who are playing tricks on their substitute teacher. And I sent it off to try to be published um, but unfortunately, despite all of my dreams and plans, um, nobody wanted to publish the book. Um, and so that kind of luckily didn't stop me from wanting to become an author. I kept working at it and kept trying. But that's what I talk about here. And then the first chapter of that book, The Ryland Revolt, follows here in this book. And it's about three pages long, single space. So, um, and then what I think is really cool is that right, um, I think it's before my chapter, is Gordon Corman's chapter himself. So it's kind of, um, I think I say in, in this book, in my introduction, how, you know, 10-year-old Alyssa would really be pinching herself to be in a book right next to Gordon Corman. And even as an adult, here I am kind of pinching myself. Right. Uh- <laughs> One of the things that jumped out at me uh, about his chapter, that is Gordon Corman, is uh, the picture of him uh, accompanying his chapter is a, a picture of him, a photo of him, uh, l- looking like a, a rugged young hockey player. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and we don't, I mean, it's, it's kind of fun to have our, our st- stereotype sort of blown out of the water that... Uh, that uh, all youngsters who love to write and aspire to be authors are uh, kind of bookworm That's types, right. shy with glasses and so on. And <laughs> this guy does not look like he was no. that kind of boy at all, but he must have had a real uh, exceptional talent. I think so. I mean, and you can see that in the, the piece that he has in here, which is a speech that he gave in a fifth grade public speaking unit that I think called How to Handle Your Parents, which is just absolutely hysterical. I think when he chose that hockey picture for this book, he also wanted to call attention to his Canadian upbringing. Ah. Um, so he wanted to make sure that that came through in the picture, too, that he grew up in Canada. Hmm. Let's turn back to your own very early writing, and then we'll talk about some of the other examples that are that are in this book. Uh, what was the experience like for you to go through this book, filled this uh, box, filled right up to the brim with uh, examples from your early childhood? Uh, you've already kind of talked about uh, how some of it, how most of it made you laugh for various reasons. Some of it was pretty good. Some of it was pretty awful as you, uh, as you assess it, as, assess it now. But on kind of an emotional level, what was this like for you uh, to 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 read your own work from so many years before work, which I assume you hadn't seen in decades? Right, I hadn't. Um, it was a, it's a strange kind of surreal experience. Um, as I think anybody can associate with, if you've ever looked through um, belongings or anything from when you were younger, um, because you, I had a vague memory, or I had a clear memory of writing some of these things, and then I, other things I'd completely forgotten about, um, and some I see them, and then the memories kind of come flooding back. Um, but I think what mostly came through going through the boxes, I... Um, I think just the it, it's I think I say in the in the introduction to this book is it any wonder I became a writer and I think that was the main feeling that that came through to me I mean just the sheer quantity of things in this box 
And then again, some people who are writers now didn't write at all as a kid, but I certainly, I mean, I must have been spending so much time writing and these stories, and I wrote mysteries that mostly remained unsolved because they were too mysterious and I couldn't figure out a solution. Um, or I wrote, I had stories from, you know, kindergarten or first grade, and they were kind of well-formed stories with characters and a conflict, which I think is incredibly impressive, especially now that I have children of my own. Um, and I look at the things that they're doing, and I, not to say that their work isn't impressive because it is, but I'm, but just the way that all of us kind of find something that we're interested in and maybe from a very early age we're passionate about it. Um, and I think what's really cool about go was going through that box and then also seeing in all of the other work that I collected for this book is just that kind of uninhibited, raw passion for something. I mean, I'm a better writer now. I'm certainly my craft is much better. I've honed it, but I'm not, I'm not that kid anymore who just, it's so, the work is so silly and so exuberant and I didn't care at all. I didn't think at all really about who was going to be reading it and what they might say about it. I was just putting it all out there on the page, which I think, you know, it just shows all of this personality. And I kind of wish I could almost get back to that place a little <laughs> bit now. You know, it's interesting to hear of, of your, your sort of insatiable hunger to write and I wonder uh it, you you give no indication of how this in a sense was off-putting to any of your peers uh <laughs> is this something you freely shared uh I mean for instance with your friends I mean were you viewed to any extent as someone kind of strange because you had this <laughs> ferocious appetite to write and also these aspirations. I mean, you were bound and determined to be a published writer before you That's turned 13. Right. I mean, so that, 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 I should think, at least to some extent, puts you a bit out of step with some of your peers. Well, I will say that now I write books called Nerd Camp. So I can <laughs> certainly um, I, I would say I'm a proud nerd. Um, but I don't think, even though I, I was doing this in my free time, I, I really was, um, even like my characters in Nerd Camp, I wasn't really as far as I know, social, socially awkward. I had lots of friends. I did lots of other things. Um, I did a lot of theater growing up, which I think is kind of another form of storytelling, too, and kind of inhabiting other characters and telling stories in that way. Um, and I, I played tennis, and I did other things, so I certainly wasn't um, lacking for any sort of social life because of this. But I was probably my favorite one of my favorite things to do would have been read and write. And when I had any time to myself, that's what I was doing. I had some friends who did it alongside me. I had certain friends where they'd come to my house or I'd go to their house and we'd write a story together. Um, I don't know, looking back, how much that was their idea or how much I was kind of forcing them into it. Um, and maybe mm -hmm. they got tired of it much more quickly than I did. But um, I definitely wasn't a social outcast by any means. But this was something that I was passionate about, for sure. And I had teachers who inspired me, and I um, thank them so much. And I, I had one teacher who had me read aloud my new chapters from this book I was writing every week in class. And I look back at that, and I feel terribly sorry for all of the kids in that class <laughs> who had to sit there and listen to me read the latest chapter from this book. <laughs> one thing that is sometimes a hallmark of uh, the work of youngsters 
is uh, kind of the assumption that whatever you're writing is wonderful. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I th- certainly think, uh, you know, this is even true. I mean, I'm, I, I'm also a professor of music and, and a musician, and, and I think about some of the first things that I composed that uh, I just sort of would blithely assume that beca- because it came out of my own pen that it, 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 it must be pretty good. And, uh, and then at some point there's this moment of reckoning where you kind of realize that's not the case. You start realizing that there are certain things that belong in the, in the wastebasket and certain right. things should be rough drafts and then you should work to really improve them. And, mm-hmm. and to me that's a, a, a gigantic turning point uh, in terms of whether or not you're going to become better at what you do. Uh, when was that moment for you? Or did you experience that moment pretty early on of, of wanting no, to, to be I better? I experienced it pretty late. I mean, I think when all of these publishers rejected my um, book in elementary school, I, I was definitely disappointed, but it never occurred to me then to revise the book. You know, I kind of thought, well, I don't know why they don't see this greatness that I created <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I don't think that I ever, even to this day, my least favorite part probably of the writing process is revising. I can't stand it. I do it, and I, and I recognize that it makes everything better, and I'm always glad that I did it, but it's my least favorite thing to do. And so then I don't think I, I revised anything um, probably until college. Um, I kind of would... And I always, you know, I was getting such positive feedback from my parents and from teachers, and which is a wonderful thing, and it gave me confidence and it encouraged me to keep going. But it probably would have been beneficial earlier if I had had someone to kind of say, hey, but what if you added more about this or took this part out or changed it a little bit? It took me a long time um, to get to that point. I'd say probably college when I was studying creative writing and then realizing and workshopping things and hearing the feedback um, and giving feedback to other people that I realized just how much of a process writing is more so than kind of an exuberant put everything down on paper and it's ready to be published. Hmm. When you look at your own really early work, how, (laughs) it's hard to phrase this question, how much of your present self do you see there? I mean, I think sometimes that can be a really interesting experience where you, where you see the 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 seed, <laughs> and and yeah. then, and sometimes we look at, at at early things and we think, where in the world did that come from? I can't believe right. I wrote this or <laughs> drew this. Um, what is your sense of connection with these uh, early pieces by you? I see a lot of myself in there still. I've always enjoyed reading the same type of book, which is a realistic realistic, funny fiction, usually school-related, about school stories or something like that. Um, and that's what I've pretty much always enjoyed writing as well. Um, I think one of my strengths as an author is dialogue, and I see good dialogue even in this very early work. Um, there are other things, there are probably more subconscious things that I don't recognize some of the more ridiculous elements or the humor, the more childish humor, I look back and I kind of roll my eyes or think, <laughs> you know, as an adult, I like to think maybe I was above that even when I was a kid, but clearly I wasn't. Um, 
But I think what's even what was really fascinating to me is sometimes it's easier to see those things in somebody else's work. And knowing the adult work, published work of the authors and illustrators in this book, being able to look at their um, creations when they were kids, you can see so much in almost all of them, just that seed or that spark of what they were to become. We're speaking with uh, Alyssa Brent Weissman and talking about the book she edited called Our Story Begins. Your favorite authors and illustrators share fun, inspiring, and occasionally ridiculous things they wrote and drew as kids. Do we have time to talk about a couple of the uh, uh, sure. chapters that are part of this book? There are all kinds of of, uh, of wonderful things here. One of the things that's uh, uh, that really jumped out at me was... Uh, the work of uh, someone by the name of Marla Frazy mm-hmm. and uh, uh, a a uh, a series of st- of a chapter book series she intended to create called June and John. <laughs> I wonder if you could just say a word about June and John and what you find impressive about uh, this uh, uh, very early work. Sure. Well, Marla Frazee now is an extremely talented and successful author and illustrator, probably best known at this moment for The Boss Baby, which is um, a major motion picture. And this is a chapter book, the beginning of a chapter book series she wanted to create when she was eight years old. Um, And one thing I love about it is that I think she says her father worked for the Heinz Ketchup Company at the time. And so all of the paper that it's on, you can see the Heinz Ketchup logo in the background. And um, it's about a a brother and sister named June and John, and they have a dog named Snoopy. She talks in her introduction about how she would just draw, she would copy the image of Snoopy anywhere she could. Um, And the two of them get into some trouble. They decide to have a lemonade stand, and they get some paint, and the paint falls. And my favorite line of the whole thing is they decide when the paint falls and they can't clean it up with a towel, they need to get turpentine. (laughs) Um, And the whole thing is written in pencil and then stapled together onto the books, and she drew the illustrations in what looks like a magic marker. Um, And somebody wrote some corrections on it as well. She She says she doesn't know if it was a teacher or her mother, but there are some corrections on the paper. But I think that the story is really, you know, cute and clever, and it's got these great pictures that I couldn't even draw this well today, although they probably are. They look you know, they're nothing spectacular. They look like a kid created them. Um, And I think that the story, again, it has these characters. It has a conflict. It's very well done. It's funny. Um, Although I think it's also worth noting that she says in her introduction that um, this is as far as she got in the chapter book series she was going to create, one book which had three chapters, and then she had to move on to more important things like trying to set the Guinness World Record for most pogo jump. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, it's so interesting. It, it it does indeed look like something that a child created. And yet, it, on the other hand, uh, it's also kind of amazing to see the intense, meticulous, loving care with which she, she put this together. I mean, clearly this was uh, important to her. And 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 you just can't help but smile at at uh, the at the at the image of a child working so hard to put something together like Absolutely. this. Absolutely, yeah. And it's just the way that it's 
the the words are then you know stapled or glued onto the paper with the drawings and she's even got the layout differently on different pages and I think you're right that you can tell the time and the care and the joy that went into creating it absolutely um, there's a very poignant story here uh, in the fifth chapter uh, and this would be an indication of of uh, of a of a person where there is absolutely nothing tangible that remains from their own childhood, a childhood spent in the nation of Vietnam. Tell our listeners okay. ab- about this this person and what, nevertheless, is included here. Sure. So this chapter is um, from Tang Ha Lai, who says she left Vietnam in a panic. Her family left before the war ended in 1975 when she was 10. And um, all she has left is one photograph that she provided for the book that she looks much younger than 10 in the photograph. And, um, and the other thing she has left are her memories. And she talks about how her mother was, I love the term she uses, a house poet who would just recite poetry, <laughs> but only in the house. It was never for, meant to be for anything else. And together she and her mother would create poems and tell each other stories. And then from her memory, she wrote down one of the stories that she remembers coming up with when she was a child in Vietnam. And it's a really wonderful story. It's short, but it's called A Bird in a Cage, about a boy trapping some birds in a cage, and then she and the birds conspire to trick the boy. Um, and Ting Ho was one of those people that my editor and I thought would be wonderful to have in the book, but we weren't sure when I reached out to her how that would work. If she had anything, if she did, it would probably be in Vietnamese. And when she told me how she didn't have any tangible objects, but that she still remembered some of the stories that she created orally, and would, she, would it be okay if she tried to write one down? And once I saw it and my editor saw it, we both said, this, this is absolutely perfect, and I'm so glad that we were able to get her and that story, the story itself and the story of, of her experience in this book. Right. And, you know, it didn't uh, occur to me until uh, just now as you were, were talking about this that it seems to me another important reason for this story to be there is the fact that it really helps one, it helps you, helps me, helps all of us appreciate uh, if we have artifacts from our own childhood. I mean, how lucky are you that your parents uh, were able to preserve all of the things that they preserved and that to this very day, you know, that box can be opened up and you can step back into your childhood. And there are all kinds of people, and not just children who grew up in Vietnam or other war-torn places, torn from their homes, but other other people who, for all kinds of different circumstances, uh, cannot turn back to their childhood in this way. That's right. That's right, for sure. I wonder if we could take a moment to talk about a really poignant uh contribution uh, in the very next chapter from uh, someone named Eric Roman. Uh, This is a a little bit out of the ordinary and such a sweet little story. Yes. So Eric, who is now um, a Caldecott-winning illustrator, extremely talented, he provided a Get Well card that he made for his Aunt Helen when he was nine years old, and he drew her dog, whose name was Butchie, on the card. And so we've got in the book the actual card, and it says, To Uncle Eddie, Aunt Jenny, and Aunt Helen, I Hope You Get Well Soon, by Eric B.R. And then the drawing of Butchie on there. Um, And as he, in his introduction, he says that actually he never even 
saw or met the dog Butchie. He had just remembered hearing about her, uh, hearing about him, um, and I think that actually, I think Butchie. He, um, he says he had seen Butchie in old photographs, but um, he'd heard stories that his aunt Helen told of Butchie fondly, and so he thought when she was sick that it might make her feel better to see something that she loved. And he goes on to talk about how the, the memories and drawing are a way of helping him see and helping him feel and make sense of emotions. And it's very brief what he writes, but as you say, it is really poignant and really moving. And then, of course, to see it alongside the card itself with the drawing um, really completes the whole picture. Absolutely. And I like the way this ends. He writes, I don't recall on Helen's response to my card, but many years later after her death, I found the drawing in a box among her belongings, carefully folded, wrapped in tissue paper with my name written on a yellowed bit of tape. And so obviously this meant a whole lot to her. And and she had taken great pains to uh, preserve it for all these years and... uh, that in and of itself uh, sort of underscores how we don't sometimes even fully understand in the moment just how special something is going to be. That's right. I really enjoy Phyllis Reynolds Naylor's uh, early efforts with something called the Food (laughs) Fairies. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this? Sure. Well, Phyllis Reynolds Naylor is an extremely prolific author of more than 145 books probably best known for her Alice series and also um, the Newbery-winning Shiloh. And one thing that I love about her that I find so interesting is she grew up during the Great Depression, and so she wasn't allowed to use a piece of paper to write a story or draw a picture because that would have been wasteful. So instead, all of her things that she created, which were many, are on old stationery that had already been used for something else, and most of it here is from the Gospel Trumpet Company. I think her mother worked at the church and brought home this used stationery for her. And so the Food Fairies is a story of all of the items in the refrigerator going to war, and it's very involved and very detailed, and the pictures are very impressive to me. I've never been a talented artist, so I find them I find them to be very impressive, but there's, um, you know, Mr. Ham and Mr. Egg are in Chapter 1, um, and all of these creatures go to war. They have a wedding by Chapter 4. Oh, there's wieners at war, and there's a great page that has then the wieners lined up for war against the bad drones, and she's got a picture of these hot dogs marching in line, um, probably also to some degree a reflection of the time at which she was growing up. And um, I think it's really, really cool that she has this saved from so long ago and that we can see it today. Absolutely wonderful. Just time for a couple more if if you have the time. Sure, that's fine. Um, um, I could talk about this book all day. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. I just love it. Um, Chapter 13 is devoted to an illustrator by the name of Chris Gall. And uh, he tells a cute story about what happened to him in the second grade uh, after he was caught... uh, uh, doodling on his desk. I want you to talk about Chris Gall and then try to describe to our listeners the wonderful early drawings of him by him that are in this book. Sure. So um, Chris Gall, who is now known for um, a number of things, but maybe best known for Dino Trucks, which is also a show on Netflix, I believe. Um, he says when he was in second grade, he was caught doodling on his desk and his teacher suggested that he might become an artist someday. 
And then she made him clean all the desks in the classroom, which I think is really wonderful. Um, and he says he tried to draw objects true to life. He says, but my trees looked like nuclear explosions. I tried to draw people's faces, but they always looked like zombies. And he found that it took many years of practice to make a drawing look like what it was supposed to look like. So instead, he would use his imagination. And I love his drawings. They kind of, they're all in, it seems to be pencil. They're not colored in. And they're the most creative things, almost like architectural renderings. So he's got one of an RV that he would use to travel the world, and it's kind of a side view, and you can see somebody driving this vehicle with a TV. With I think it's got four or five TVs in it. That must have been very important. And he's labeled various things, the supply, the antenna. He has another one um, for his dream home, and it's got um, a horse and mini bike race track. It has a, y- a lawn. It even says 50 feet underground. There's atomic power. Um, and it really looks like something that maybe you would have thought he'd go into architecture or design because these really look like drawings for that. Um, and he says it wasn't until a little bit later that he started then creating stories to go along with his drawings and it came together that way for him. He has a third one in here that's an underwater lab, and you can have see a scuba diver and all of the details of the different rooms within this underwater lab. It's extremely <laughs> creative. Yeah, it's just fascinating. And, and it's kind of fun, too, because sometimes at a careless, casual glance, you know, a bunch of, of children's drawings can kind of all look the same. I mean, and in some respects, mm-hmm. I suppose they do, particularly if it's of the same sort of subject matter. And then every so often, we will come across something, and immediately it's something very much unique, uh, special to that particular young artist. Definitely, and I think that is for, for sure true about Chris Gall. It stands out among everything in here. Uh, Another entry in this book that I think stands out in a very wonderful way is by someone named Tom Engelberger. And he has a great (laughs) sense of humor as he kind of writes about uh, what he has uh, written and what he shares here. And uh, at one point in his little essay, he's talking about how... uh, why did I write, in this case, bad encyclopedia entries when I was a kid? I guess for the same reason I wrote bad comics, bad comic books, bad poems, bad jokes, and the start of a bad novel. Basically, I never shut up. I was either talking, writing, or yammering away inside my own brain. (laughs) (laughs) Now, describe to our listeners this intriguing sort of encyclopedia that he created. Yeah, so Tom Engelberger is best known nowadays for his Origami Yoda series, um, which are very funny, clever books um, about a boy who creates an origami Yoda that people in his class think can give this, can see the future. Um, And I find it very interesting that this journal that he found and sent me is called Yodium, and it's about this world he created called Yodium, but instead of writing an actual story, about it, this seems to just be all the planning. And so it's pretty much, as Tom calls it, an encyclopedia. Um, and it's got nine sections about all the regions of Yodium. There's Yodium, Lapina, Nastonia. And what he gives, the information he gives, is so dry 
and so um, just informational. You know, he says this country depends mainly on agriculture. They grow mostly wheat and other grains, so they also have a shipbuilding business. And then this country is at war with this country, and it's just these detailed notes about this entire world he was building for some epic novel that it doesn't sound like ever got written. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just so interesting to think that this the creating this this entirely fictional encyclopedia you know of this world that doesn't really exist uh satisfied some kind of urge that was inside this young boy uh and and of course that's part of what's kind of fun about this is to just try to imagine what was this about i mean not not right. not not was the content about but what was going in uh, what was going on inside of him that what what was this feeding, or in what way was this fulfilling him? Right, it's true, and I think um, you know Tom to this day has a great sense of humor. And when I invited him to be part of the book, he was very excited about it, but he wasn't sure he'd be able to find anything. He said he wrote he wrote a ton, but he didn't know what he had saved. He was hoping to find, I believe, if I remember correctly, something called Snail Cowboy Comics. <laughs> Which I think also would have been fascinating to see. I think Snail Cowboy could be a book that he might create nowadays. Um, And then I remember distinctly an email he sent me a few months later saying, hit pay dirt when cleaning out my office. An entire, you know, notebook full of encyclopedia, boring world-building stuff. And so he was excited to find this for himself. And I wonder, as you asked me, what it was like to look through and, and wonder... Um, and see my younger self through my work, what he felt looking back at this. Hmm. We should say that part of the charm of this book is to look at things that have what we fully expect from really, really young writers or really, really young illustrators. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, in the same way that we are charmed by something that our own children or our nieces and nephews or whoever uh, create, so too we're charmed by these uh, because we are filling in sort of a gap in a story, or we, or it's it's an indication, a precursor of of great things that this young person will go on to do uh, as adults. Right. And then there are a couple of things here in which they're really wonderful, uh, even as they were created by by this young person. I mean, with a with a a level of finish and polish that's really astounding. And I think one of the better examples of that in the book is what is uh, was created by someone named Grace Lynn in chapter yeah. 23. I knew you were going to say Grace Lynn, <laughs> where you were going with that. <laughs> so first because of all, tell us... Is just, it's just unbelievably polished, and um, it's Grace Lynn is... Um, well-known now for Where the Mountain Meets the Moon and um, a number of other wonderful books for young readers. And she's an illustrator as well. And she provided a, a book that she created um, called Dandelion Story when, that she entered into a contest when she was in middle school in a, a national bookmaking contest, and she won fourth place with this book. And we, couldn't, we didn't have room to include the whole thing, but we've got the prologue and um, a lot of the book. And it's just... It looks like watercolors that she used, and it's a story about flowers, and then the wind takes a flower on a journey. And um, I think she says that she created this. The idea was from 
a project in school where they had to pick a religion out of a hat, and she picked Taoism, and then create a civilization based around that that religion, and she came up with this civilization of flowers. And it really is just, it's just beautiful, and especially the illustrations. And it's one of those things that, um, to be honest, when I first had this idea, I worried a little bit that everything these people created would be so excellent and so precocious that it would actually be off-putting to young readers because people might read it and say, like, well, I don't have that much talent right now, so I'm, I'm never going to have a future in this. Um, but actually, as you mentioned before, I think mo- there's such a range in here, and some of them are so polished and put together like Grace Lynn's, and then others are much more representative of what, what most kids that age are making. And so I think that that's what makes the book really inspirational, because it's not it's clear that there's, it's not just a matter of, you know, um, natural talent that you needed to have this spark right from the beginning and you have it or you don't. I think most people you can see the thing that comes through is how much fun they had and how much they enjoyed working, writing, drawing, making up stories. But it, it was hard work that really made them succeed in the long run. Absolutely. And uh, to, to close, I think about uh, something that Chris Grabenstein said in uh, the very next chapter. He includes some things that uh, he wrote as, uh, as, as a youngster. And one of the things he talks about is his earnest attempts to use really, really big words, right. <laughs> uh, even words that he didn't uh, necessarily fully understand. He, he shares uh, an excerpt from uh, an essay he wrote back in the eighth grade, recently discovered in an antique spiral-bound notebook, uh, October 25th, 1968. Autumn is the time of trekking down the cold-nipped street, looking in tranquility at the majestic splendor of the landscape laid out in front of you like a silk linen cloth. And then, he, and then he goes on to write, Yes, I am using big words. No, they are not necessarily the right big words. <laughs> and, and, but there's just something really sort of beautiful about uh, those earnest attempts by a young writer to, in a sense, push themselves past their own point of 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 comfort in a sense right right and he says you know in his signature humorous style that he acknowledges he went overboard he says i asked for a thesaurus for my birthday i asked for a dictionary for christmas and um then he analyzes those lines of the poem saying you know now he now knows you cannot that silk and linen are two different cloths um, (laughs) and things like that but we all have that i mean one of those stories that i found in my box was must have been from something i was reading at the time that i had this incredibly pretentious air about i wrote something you know it was filled with indeed and um words that i would just never speak aloud that i was kind of i guess you know experimenting with different voices and different ways of writing um and that's one of the wonderful things about looking back at your childhood work, as I said, you know, in that uninhibited way. Chris Grabenstein would never write something like that today because he knows better and he's probably thinking of what kids and readers and critics will say. But back when he was in middle school and he was writing in this spiral notebook, he was pushing himself to try to to try to see what he could do. Mm. Well, this book is just endlessly fascinating, wonderful in so many different ways. And I do want to mention to our listeners that two different authors that I have interviewed in the past on this program, 
uh, are represented here, Peter Larangis and uh, Tim Fetterly, uh, who have both been morning show guests, and uh, they have their own uh, wonderful contributions. This book, again, is called Our Story Begins. Your favorite authors and illustrators share fun, inspiring, and occasionally ridiculous things they wrote and drew as kids. And in almost every case, we are seeing the actual work, the actual drawing, or the actual story as it was written, or even once in a while, typed on uh, on a typewriter <laughs> that the young author was uh, granted access to. The book is published by uh, Athenium Books for Young Readers and uh, the editor, Alyssa Brent Weissman. Alyssa Brent Weissman, thank you for putting together this delightful book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about thank it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.